had to record the sermon. I do not want to break the rules, because I'm a guest here, so <laughs> thank you very much for having me. Uh, I'm John. Doug gave me a fantastic introduction. Thank you for that, Doug. I think he actually... Did he leave? Anyway, I don't know. Uh, good morning. Uh, yeah, welcome, and uh, I feel very welcomed, so thank you for welcoming me. I welcome you here, too. I'm, uh, I'm excited to be here. I told the first service, it's funny, on, I was over here, or on the way over here yesterday, and I was just thinking about my relationship, you know, with some of the people here at uh, the church, and um, it's interesting, I, there's some people here in this church community who I have a closer relationship with, and I feel closer to than even, like, people in my own church community, which is a weird thing to process and think about, oh, that's, that's kind of weird, but I guess I'm just kind of new to I live in Anacortes. I've lived there for a few years now, but, uh, you know, I've had friends out here for a longer period of time, and I, uh, yeah, all that to say, this is just a special place to me, so uh, I'm I'm honored to be here. Thank you for having me. I'm looking forward to sharing with you, and I'm happy to worship with you guys this morning. I've already done one, so I can tell you, it's going to be good, the rest of the service here, so I actually, I gave the first service like a caveat. I said, you know, if I don't do so good. Give me some grace. I, on Friday, I, I'm not contagious, but I was diagnosed with a sinus infection. I'm on antibiotics and all sorts of stuff. So if I sound like I'm in a cave or I don't sound enthused, it's not because I don't like you or I'm not happy to be here. I am. I just, I may, I'm not at 100%. So uh, forgive me for that. And uh, also, if it's not great, maybe I just... I gave it my best shot the first service, and you guys are getting my leftovers. So, yeah, so I don't know. You could come to church tonight in Anacortes if, if it disappoints, but uh, 6 o'clock tonight. Um, <clears throat> so Joe filled me in a little bit, and I confirmed with some other people that this is, in fact, the, the reality. He shared with me that you guys are sort of on a journey together as a church community, uh, incorporating some scripture reading into your walks with Jesus and into your personal lives, which is awesome. Uh, I, I, he, he mentioned that he lobbied pretty hard for the Read Scripture app, like on your phone, and I downloaded it after he was telling me about it. I have some other friends who like it too, and so I checked it out, and I really like those guys who, uh, who released it, the, the Bible Project, all that group of people from Portland. They have really great content, really great stuff, so <clears throat> it's, it's cool. I was nerding out on it. I like how it divides, like the... Uh, there's like chapter divisions, and it's giving you a summary of the book and summary of different chapters in there. I, I think it's... I, I like stuff like that. I, I nerd out like that. So very cool stuff. Um, shameless plug if you haven't downloaded it. I think it's great. Uh, and I'd like to share today um, something along those lines with you guys. Uh, we're going to talk about meditation on the scriptures today. Um, <clears throat> let me just see here. So it's been a burden for many of you at least to incorporate the reading of Scripture into your your life, you know, into your walk with Jesus here. And uh, you do so to get some benefits, right? To yield some benefits into your own life. You want to distill the power and the wisdom and the the grace of God down into your heart, into your own personal life. And uh, I recently, just because, you know, being January and everything, I, I started a Through the Bible reading plan too and you know as a result of 
I've had a rough couple days since Friday, and so to be honest, you know, I've had to do some speed reading and a little bit of skipping, you know, in my through the Bible yearly reading plan. So uh, I just want to encourage you if you're like, oh, it's the end of January and I've already made some uh, backwards progress, that's okay. I would just encourage you, don't get too bogged down, you know, about, or like defeated, feeling like you've lost momentum, because, you know, I get that, that happens to people, so the best thing that you can do is just pick back up, you know, and skip to where you should be, and not sweat it, because you, as a Christian person, you have your whole life to get this thing down, you know, reading through the Bible, and and gleaning all this great wisdom and power for your life, so don't worry about it, and uh, just pick up where where you need to pick up. It's okay. So uh, that spiritual discipline, which it is, it's a discipline that requires some effort on our end. Reading the scripture, that's a really great thing to do. And and it's awesome that you're incorporating it into your lives here as a church community because uh, it takes all the stuff that you believe, your cognitive beliefs, the things that are floating around in your brain and... uh, you know, all those things that you believe about your Christian faith, and it causes them to go down and to invade your personal life. And it causes them to, to go down and, and invade your daily living space. You know, it brings them into a reality, into parental view. And since about October of 2019, our church has been <clears throat> on a similar journey, and we've been asking uh, some questions. We've been, we've been going through and asking some questions like these together. Uh, Christianity may be something that you believe cognitively, but does it change you? Christianity, you know, through your faith, can you look at your life and can you see measurable changes in the way that you think and feel? Does your faith have a bearing on the way that you make decisions and navigate through your life? Things like this. Has the cognitive come down? Uh, Now, if you've been a Christian for a little while, and it only takes a little while, believe me, I have some experience here, uh, and you probably do too, it's possible, very possible, to have a firm intellectual grasp on Christian principles and answer no to some of those questions. Uh, No, I'm not really seeing measurable changes in the way I feel or I think. I'm still feeling really stressed out or I'm really still having thoughts like this that I don't want to have and I'm battling with them. Uh, I am actually still making decisions, making plays, making calls in my life that I look back and I regret. You know, things like that. So I have this, you know, cognitive understanding of Christianity, but sometimes I, I, I'm struggling here. You know, and it's, it's easy to become so, like, frustrated with ourselves, you know, where we, we can be our own worst critics, right? And it's like we do that to ourselves. Um, sorry, I told you I gave my best to the first service, and uh, I'm a little disorganized here with my notes. I preach verbatim from pieces of paper, so I don't recommend it to you, actually. <laughs> so, uh, what I'm out to do today, it's not to rub failures in your face. You know, hey, it's the end of January, maybe you've already made some backwards progress and whatnot. Even though that's what church is usually about, you know, rubbing guilt and failure in your face. Uh, I'm kidding, of course. That joke went off better with second service versus the 830. Even I wasn't ready for that yet at 830. Um, So I don't want to rub difficulties or failures in your Christian faith in your face, but rather I'd like you... Uh, to, I'd like to help you see some of the ways, some of the pathways to that real measurable change. If you ask yourself, am I experiencing measurable change? Maybe the answer is 
not as much a yes as I'd like, well, can we get there? Uh, there is wisdom and power for us here in the scriptures. And, uh, you know, it may be the case for you, frankly, that you've not tasted that for a long time, that you've been without that experience for a while. And uh, what we'll try to do today is just build a bridge back to that wisdom for your life, build a bridge back to that power for your life, because the, even the frustrating thing is you know it's there, and it just feels like, you know, I'm not, I'm not quite getting it. So maybe today what we can do is we can build, build a bridge back. So we're going to talk about, um, <clears throat> to learn about that and to do that, we're going to talk about something I like to call one of the lost Christian disciplines. There's a few. I'm going to give a message on Sabbath tonight. And first time of the Sunday of the year, gave a message on fasting. Uh, also a lost Christian discipline. But today we're going to talk about the subject of Psalm 1. Uh, which is meditation. So if you do have a Bible, uh, or you have a phone and a Bible app, just please flip over or scroll down to, or search for the first psalm, Psalm 1. So the subject of uh, the psalm, it's, we're, we're going to be talking about meditation on the scriptures. So <clears throat> it's, it's pretty simple because it's so short, it's only six verses. It, it, it's easy to get a grasp of what this is about. So let's just read it, and, uh, and then I'll... I'll I'll pray for us. So Psalm 1, it says, Blessed is the man who walks not in the counsel of the wicked. I have the ESV, by the way. Sorry if this is a little different. Blessed is the man who walks not in the counsel of the wicked, nor stands in the way of sinners, nor sits in the seat of scoffers. But his delight is in the law of the Lord. And on his law, he meditates on it day and night. He is like a tree planted by streams of water that yields its fruit in its season, and its leaf does not wither. In all that he does, he prospers. The wicked are not so, but are like chaff that the wind drives away. Therefore, the wicked will not stand in the judgment, nor sinners in the congregation of the righteous. For the Lord knows the way of the righteous, but the way of the wicked will perish. <clears throat> That's the first in the book of Psalms. So if you would, uh, just bow your head with me and we'll pray before looking at this great passage. Our Father, we uh, thank you for this morning. We thank you for this great time to come together and worship. We thank you for the great uh, just tradition and history that we're uh, a part of today, thinking of Sunday, the Lord's Day, where for thousands of years your people have come together to celebrate you to celebrate that great work that your son did on the cross for us, to celebrate that great moment where he took away all of our sins. He took them onto onto himself and offered us um, grace and forgiveness and just a hope for life. And so we just pray today as we look at this really wonderful promise we have in the Old Testament, would you help us uh, catch it? Would you help us to comprehend it? And I I just pray uh, for myself and on behalf of all of us here today, Father, that you would um, help us to really connect this to our life so we might experience just um, hope and power and joy and just peace from this great, this great faith that we all have in common. So we need your power for that, and we pray it all in Jesus' name. Amen. Thank you. Oh, my goodness. Angels do exist. I was wondering, you know, they didn't cover that in seminary. <clears throat> so it's pretty easy to just get a gist. If you just look at Psalm chapter 1 again, it's short, or Psalm 1, excuse me, you can understand the subject. So in verse 1, basically it's saying, do not do these things, right? You have a lot of nots. Don't do these things. And then in verse 2 it says um, that do this. 
do not do this, verse 1. Verse 2, do this. And then the rest of the passage, in essence, is saying, if you do what I've said, it will be well with you. And then if you don't, it will not be well with you. You'll experience trouble in your life. So it's pretty easy to get the general idea in short of what he's saying. But to get to the really, the main, the core idea here, what's it all about, we just have to look at the very center. And a lot of times, in, in especially the Old Testament, Hebrew, like literature, it's like that. The, the beginning and the end, they're related to one another, and the very middle has like the main idea. And so if you look at the center, you see the main idea, and it's um, at the end of verse 2, and it's verse 3. Meditating on the law of the Lord, the scriptures, to the point of delight. That's the main idea and point of the first psalm here. And look at this. This is maybe particularly interesting to you as an individual. Do you see what this psalm is promising you? It's the first word of the first book of the book of Psalms. Blessed. So what's, being, what's on offer here for you as Christian people is blessedness. Blessedness is on offer here for you. That means total well-being. Total well-being is offered to you. So the psalm is saying, Psalm 1 is saying, not just belief, though you don't need much more than that. You don't need more than that to get into this whole arrangement. But not just belief, but this. Meditation on the scriptures is something that will bring blessedness into your life. So, total well-being. Do you need a little bit of that? Uh, I do. I would like some of that uh, today even. So, meditation on the scriptures will bring you blessedness. That concept of meditation, we might have other associations with that, and we'll talk about in particular what that is. We even have a little guided handout to help us uh, guide through our, our meditation time. But this concept, it's all over the place in the Bible. Meditation, the Psalms in particular, are just chock full of this. Meditate, meditate, meditate. Another one that's very, very popular, some of you might remember uh, the openings of the story of Joshua. If you go and you look at Joshua, Israel, they, you know, they're this newly formed nation state and they're about to go and, you know, into their territory. They're going to take the promised land. And there's this admonition from their great leader, Joshua. He gives it to all the people. And some of you remember this. Uh, be strong and courageous. Do not be afraid. And we really like that. You know, it's very motivational and all of that. Be strong and courageous. Do not be afraid. And it's said a number of times in the introduction to that Joshua sequence. But if you go back and you read that, you'll notice that sandwiched each, each between each time that he says that. It's like, be strong and courageous. Do not be afraid. Meditate on the law of the Lord day and night. Be strong and courageous. Do not be afraid. Meditate on the law of the Lord day and night. And so Joshua gives for us in that great Bible passage this correlation, this link between strength, courage, blessedness, fearlessness, and meditation on the Scriptures. So if we would like to instill in our life strength and courage, blessedness, you know, a lack of fear, Joshua and the psalmist here might say to us, we should learn something about this, meditating on the Scriptures. So again, we might have other associations in our mind with that, like Eastern meditation, Transcendental meditation. That's not what this is about. We'll get to the nitty-gritty particulars of what it is all about. But all that to say... We should consider it. And again, I, I like to call it a lost discipline uh, in Christianity because this, uh, this wasn't in Christianity 101 for me at least, and this is a more recent sort of practice for me. So, and I think it's very much worth looking at. So we'll just divide this into three parts here and we'll move uh, 
quickly through the second and third, spend a bit of time on the first. So <clears throat> the first thing we'll look at is the metaphorical. So understanding what all of this is about, there's a deep metaphor here in the first psalm that helps us understand. <laughs> then we'll get to the practical, just understanding how do we do this? How can we incorporate this into our life and, and gain all those benefits? And then third, we'll look at the impactful to understand why does this work? work? What's the deep and powerful mystery behind it all that will really show us the key to it? So the first, the metaphorical. So the metaphors here in the middle, they explain to us what we're promised through meditation. So if you look here, verse 3, it says, He is like a tree planted by streams of water that yields its fruit in its season, and its leaf does not wither. So the metaphor, what's being promised in Psalm 1 is a stability. It's promising a rootedness. You know, it promises that a person who learns to meditate on the law of the Lord day and night will have roots that go down into underground streams. That's the language he's using there, right? You'll be like a tree planted by streams of water. Now, if you look, there's sort of this fun contrast. There's, actually, it might not be fun. It might make you feel uncomfortable, and I'll explain it all in a second. It talks about the godly and the ungodly. I'm not going to solo any of you out here uh, or label you in any of those ways but it talks about the godly person and that that person delights in and meditates on the law of god right here's the godly and then you have the ungodly and this person goes their own way they have no delight in the law of god it's not interesting subject matter to them they don't really care one way or the other what he says and so if you look at it it's just all the way through it's agricultural right it's kind of like botanical it's talking about plant life talking about being a tree. Uh, So let me just make a few opening remarks here. It is not saying, if you look at the comparisons here, it's not saying that the righteous person or the godly person, it's not saying that the godly person is a big strong tree and the ungodly person is a little shrub. Because that would be a matter of degrees, right? Like the ungodly person is like this, but then the godly person is a bigger, better version. It's It's not saying that at all. It's not like It's a matter of degrees. The contrast is between a tree and not a shrub, but chaff. Right? That comes in the fourth verse. The wicked are not so, but are like chaff that the wind drives away. So what's chaff? The godly aren't contrasted to a little tree, and they're the big tree. They're contrasted to the chaff. Chaff is also plant material. Right? So what chaff is, it's a particular part of the plant. You would go into harvest time, and you would go and you'd harvest your crop... And when you go through to get the good fruit or whatever of your harvest around the seed or around the grain, there's a husk. And that husk, when you shed it off, that husk is the chaff. So you harvest it, that husk gets separated from the the fruit, the crop, and that gets thrown out. So that's the chaff. It's not a valuable part of the harvest. It's something that's discarded when you go and do your work. Uh, It also happens to be very light. You harvest all of your good plant material and then the chaff. It's almost weightless, and so you would just discard it, and it would blow away. It would almost just you know, be reincorporated into the environment. It just blows around in the wind. So it's talking about you know, agriculture. It's talking about plant life. But obviously, this part of the plant, the chaff, it's, it's, not, it's rootless. Right? It's not part of the root system. It does not draw up nutrients for itself. It has no ability to produce fruit. It has no ability also to stay put and weather the elements. So you think about that. You know, a rooted plant can kind of survive some... The wind is blowing around and you have all of this happening. 
so it's rootless, it cannot endure the elements. <clears throat> So I just want to tell you uh, what this is saying and what this is not saying. Uh, it's not saying, we're talking about the chaff being rootless and then the, the righteous being like a rooted tree. It's not saying that religious people are head and shoulders above or better than non-religious people. It's not saying that at all. And let me qualify that for you for a minute. Um, it's not saying that Christians get the award for best behaved all the time. Uh, sometimes Christians are bitter and smarmy people. You know, uh, one of the things that we all love about being from a small town, you know, it's the island. I grew up on an island. I, I live on another island now. One of the things we love about being in a small town is everybody knows everything about everyone, right? That's kind of part of the social dynamic that you live in when you uh, come to a place like the places we live in. And uh, that's prime opportunity to be smarmy. Inside, outside the Christian community, right? Uh, here's a great example of that. If you go, like, for example, back into the Old Testament, maybe some of you are doing your through the Bible reading plan right now, and you've just read through this, the story of Jacob and Esau, right? Remember the two brothers, and you have Jacob. He's the one who has this covenant relationship with God, right? God's like, I'm going to move through your family, and, you know, you're going to make history, and, and I'm going to work with you to bring blessedness into the world. But you look at Jacob, you look at his you know, personal character, he's kind of a bitter and smarmy person, right? He's a manipulative, sneaky individual. He's not, you know, he's not operating you know, with the best practices. He's a manipulative type of person. And so this is not saying that Christians are always like the knight in shining armor. You know, it's not saying that at any point here. You probably have some examples in your life that speak against that very idea. Right? Probably all of us do. So, the psalm here, it's not saying that Christians categorically cannot be sneaky, bitter people. It is saying, though, this. It's saying that the Christian, this particular type of person, the, the, the Christian, they, there's a difference in their nature. There's a difference in our nature. You're rooted. There's a rootedness to you. You're not chaff. You're not stirred up and just blow away. And so, in other words, a godly person is like a tree, Psalm 1 tells us here, whose roots have grown deep underground. They are not drawing nutrients from the surrounding soil, right? But they're drawing their nutrients from elsewhere, from a stream, from an underground stream. Because, you know, most trees, most plants, think about it, we're going back to like middle school, middle school science class here, uh, all of their nourishment comes from the surrounding soil, right? So what very particular circumstance must, must this, what has to happen for there to be soil or moisture in the soil? It's got to rain, right? You know, I, it's funny. I, there's someone, I, I mentioned you for service, you're from San Diego, and I'm so sad that you're here in January because it's beautiful like six months from now, you know, but we're getting a lot of this. It was actually great today, but you know, only under a very particular circumstance will a plant have the moisture it needs in the surrounding soil, and that's if it rains. Exterior circumstances have to be good to give this plant its life. But the godly person, here's the image, the godly person who can learn to meditate on the scriptures, and it is a learned, it is a learned behavior, they tap into something deeper. Here's what it's saying. You're tapping into something deeper 
underground streams. He shall be planted by streams of water. So underground streams, when you have a subterranean current down there, they are not dependent on seasonal circumstances. You are not waiting on the rain for your nourishment because your root goes down into something deeper. You can exist in the scorch of the summer when it's very, very hot. You can exist in the bitter chill of the winter when it's very, very cold. Both circumstances give you no moisture in the surrounding soil, in your environment. But if you're rooted into a system with a deep underground stream, you have life. There's stability for you. You have a sense of power and regularity in your life. You will not wilt. You will not wither. So this is the contrast. It's saying that this is totally the opposite of the chaff. Because the chaff is just blown around by outside circumstances. It's it's light. You know, it's weightless and it'll just be blown around. So it's not saying that Christians are going to take the moral high road all the time. It's not saying that Christians are even more pleasant people than non-believing people. Again, we probably have examples of that in our life. But what it is saying is that the Christian person, friends of mine, believing brothers and sisters, the Christian person has a tap root. The core of their root system, and it goes all the way down into God. That's what it's saying about us. And if we'll meditate on the scriptures, it says we'll be able to draw up hope, and draw up joy, and draw up strength from somewhere outside ourselves from somewhere where maybe our circumstances don't look like that's on offer for us, but we can draw them up from somewhere deeper than ourselves. Heat of the summer, cold of the winter. You know, whether you've succeeded or whether you've failed, that's a metric, of, you know, that's a metric for us of self-worth in our culture. Whether you're approved of or whether you're criticized by your peers can be very hard to exist at times if you feel like you're not approved by people you want to be approved of. This is saying the Christian person has a degree of stability. They can draw nourishment up from somewhere outside of their circumstances. Look at verse 1. It talks about the scoffers, right? It says, do not sit in the seat of the scornful or the scoffer. Do loud voices, do scoffers, do critical voices in your life shape who you are? Do they shape your behavior? Do you bend to the voices of the loud critics in your life? This is particularly easy if you're a a younger person right now. Are you shaped by loud voices, maybe, on social media? Do you get your sense of validation, your sense of self-worth from scoffers, from the voice of the opinionated people around you? The Psalms have a, a title for this. They say that this is like being blown around like chaff. It's to be weightless. It's to have no stability, no security in who you are. So think about this for a second with me. We'll, we'll go through this and then we're going to move on to the practical. I promise the poetic and the very, very philosophical will be over in a moment. But think about this for me. And I'm not picking on anybody here. Uh, just, you know, the house of God, house of worship, it's, it's open to all sorts of different types of people. And that's one of the beautiful things about it. It's not uh, exclusive. So I'm just making an objective philosophical observation. I'm asking you to think about it with me. What is the hope of your life if you do not believe in God? What's the hope of your life if you do not believe in God? What is your future? What is your destiny if you do not believe in God? Um, There's a a period of time, this way of thinking and these people, they're not quite celebrity like they once were. When I was in high school, it was like the mid-O's, you know, like six, seven, eight. There was a, a slew of authors. They released all these books. They're called The New Atheist or The Four Horsemen of Atheism. It was like Richard Dawkins, uh, The God Delusion. Um, 
God is Not Great by Christopher Hitchens. Sam Harris was another one of the guys. I, can't, I can never remember the fourth guy. But they, they were coming out with all these books that were very popular for a short amount of time. And it was, they all have this one thing in common. They have this hero. And his name's Bertrand Russell. He's a British philosopher who was a bit before their time. And he has this essay. His most popular essay is called A Free Man's Worship. And he has a great observation here as an answer to that question. What, what is the hope of our life without God? Bertrand Russell, he says, All human labors, all devotion, all inspiration, all the works of human genius are destined to extinction in the vast death of the solar system. And the whole temple of man's achievement must inevitably be buried beneath the debris of a universe in ruins. <clears throat> so that's probably the opposite of what you came to church to hear today, right? Uh, that sort of, that line of reasoning there. Uh, but what Russell says is basically we, like all organic matter, we die and we rot. You know, we, like everything else around us, we will decompose and eventually be nothing but dust. We become nothing but dust, weightless, blown away. We just become chaff, like everything else in the natural created order. We share in the vast death of the solar system. His, he's very eloquent. He says, we're nothing but a collocation of atoms. You know, we're a just meaningless, vibrating sack of chemicals. The sun dies, the world dies, and we die with it. Nothing, we ever done, we, nothing that we've ever done counts. We have no lasting legacy. No memory of us will carry on. Etc. Etc. This is, you could say, the theology of the materialist secular worldview. Again, maybe not what you came to church to hear about today, but uh, still, that's out there. That's floating out in the world. And I, I actually grew up um, being educated in this sort of system, and a lot of people are. It's just uh, a more modern way to view the world. But moving from the rational to the emotional. How does that make you feel? <laughs> Which is a silly question, right? That's a silly question because that makes you feel horrible. If you, if you just consider that, if you truly consider that, it, just, it does not make you feel fantastic. And what's the only way to deal with that? The only way to deal with that, what is a horrible reality, is to hide from it. You have to distract yourself from that horrible reality because what's the reality? We're nothing but chaff. We're dust that blows away in the wind. Like all organic matter, we just go away and we die. Can you see how harmful emotionally an internal life philosophy like that is? Just with me for a second. Think. It basically requires you to lie to yourself. You must daily suppress your deepest belief, which is that you have really no meaning at all. You have to borrow from the Christian or the religious cookie jar daily and say, but I do have meaning. I do have meaning. There is a functional purpose for my life. You have to lie to yourself. You have to suppress the deepest thing that you believe, which is there is no meaning. I just decompose and rot like everything else. I'm just actually dust. <clears throat> so do you see the power of the metaphor in Psalm 1? The first psalm here. Chaff that just blows away in the wind. That's not what we are. The psalmist is telling us if there's a God, if there is a God, and if you can have a relationship with Him by faith, which is the position of the Christian worldview, and you learn to meditate on what He says, you will be like a tree rooted in streams of water, and you will yield fruit in and out of season. You'll have a deep power to your life. You will have a sustainability to your emotions. 
you'll have some power. Good times come and bad times come into your life. Christians are not immune from bad times. Again, many of you have first-hand experience of this. But your leaf never withers. You have a power. You have a rootedness. You can weather the storm. You have a taproot that goes deep down into God. So, that's the metaphorical. That's the imagery that the psalmist uses here, right? It's all agriculture. He's talking about being a strong plant or being like chaff. All that. But second, let's just talk about the practical. Let's talk about how we can actually incorporate this into our lives. Let's talk about how we can actually have some of this power. So, much less poetic now. You know, we're not going to go into like atheist philosopher, like craziness. No, no more like, you know, nothing like that anymore. It'll just be relatively painless from here on out. Uh, this is the practical bit. So just a few things to consider about Psalm 1. The book of Psalms, it, first... The book of Psalms was the worship text for the people of Israel. So in their worship services and in their liturgy, this is what they would use, right? It's a book of prayers. And largely the book of Psalms, it teaches you to pray. And you go through, and if you do go through with some regularity, probably you draw a lot of encouragement and comfort from this great you know, collection of 150 books of just wonder. Now, would you assume, this question for you, would you assume that the opening psalm and a collection of 150 of them would be a significant one. Would you assume that that first one would be important? Doesn't the introduction of a book usually give you some information about what the rest of the work is going to be about? You know, doesn't it give you some insight? The funny thing, though, you have this big book of prayers. The funny thing is there's no mention of prayer in the first part of the prayer book. You know, just go look through. There's no petition here. There's, he's never asking anything of or from God. So the first psalm, it is not a prayer. Though most of the psalms are prayers, the first psalm is not a prayer. It's a meditation. There's no asking here. There's no petition. There's no request. It's informational. Look at what he's saying. He's just saying things that are true if you go through and you look at it, right? Blessed is this person. Behave in this way. Maybe do not behave. In, it's... It's informational. Now, there's certain experts in like Hebrew and ancient Semitic texts and languages that repetition and order of appearance in Hebrew literature, that those are no accident. That actually repetition and order of appearance, what's called the principle of first mention, if you see something early on and it's repeated lots of times, uh, experts will say that that is how a writer to their original audience would emphasize their point. This is important if it jumps off the page at the very beginning. Or it's very important if it's, you know, it occurs frequently. So they'll point this out to you. Why is the first psalm all about meditation? This thing that is maybe, you know, ambiguous to us. Why is the first psalm all about meditation? It's because meditation is the key to prayer. Meditation is the key to prayer, which is to say, if you don't meditate before you pray, your prayers might not be all that great. Now, um, does that resonate with you? Again, I said if you've been a Christian for a while, you've experienced some of the ups and downs. Prayers not being so great. That resonates with me a lot. And so please listen, because this is... I, when I learned this, which was not too long ago, this, this practice of meditating on the Scriptures, this got me out of a really big stage of spiritual apathy, which, you know, compounds even worse and worse when you, like, say, okay, I want to go into church work, I want to... Pers- pursue like uh, pastoral work and okay now I'm not feeling 
super enriched by the Christian religion. Oh, well now my guilt is compounding because I'm supposed to be some sort of spokesperson for this, but I'm feeling spiritually apathetic. I'm feeling like I'm plateauing. And that happens to people, right? And many of you have the same experience. Prayer, not feeling so great. And so when I started doing this, and we'll get to this beautiful uh, rendition of Martin Luther here in a moment, but when I, when I got into this, it really took me from a, a stage of plateau to, to a, a degree of spiritual health. So I, I'd love to share it with you. So first thing to consider is the order of appearance, frequency, very important. Just consider, second, meditation, it's the key to prayer. Meditation is the key to prayer. So think about that this was kind of my introduction to spiritual discipline. Like I, when I got my Christianity 101, when I first became a Christian, when I was 17, uh, I was kind of offered Bible reading and prayer. So consider Bible reading, something that, you know, we're in, in your church, you're kind of on this journey together, trying to incorporate scripture reading into your life. Uh, that's a spiritual discipline. If you just go with like the waves of life and you wake up and you do what you feel you want to do, you probably won't wake up with the Bible in your lap, like drinking a latte or something and having deep contemplative moment. If you just go with the tides of life, so it's a discipline. You have to exert some effort in order to do this, right? But Bible reading, what are you doing when you study the Bible, when you read it? You're using your mental faculties, right? You're learning you're intaking information, you're processing information, uh, and the object of your mental faculties is the scripture, right? You're processing information, and it's the Bible. So there's scripture reading, there's a spiritual discipline, and then consider prayer. Prayer is also a spiritual discipline, right? But it's a little different, and so, like I said, when I first became a Christian, I was offered Bible reading, and then I'm offered prayer. You read your Bible for a bit, and then you pray for a bit, sort of disconnected, right? But, but, Prayer is also a spiritual discipline. It's not like the first. The object is not the Bible, but the object is God. Right? You're, you're undergoing communication. You're telling God who he is. Right? There's a bit of that, which is actually not weird if you think it's strange to go into a time of prayer and say, uh, Father, thank you for your goodness. You are so great. Uh, think about the types of relationships you have with other people. You're having affirmational moments and words with other people, that's actually really important for a relationship to succeed, right? If no one ever tells you anything, never gives you any affection, never gives you any affirmation, you feel like the relationship's not so great, right? Children actually need words of affirmation in order to grow up and be like, you know, psychologically and emotionally whole and healthy. And so when you go into, a, into prayer, it's, it's not strange to say, um, God, thank you for your goodness. Father, thank you for you're giving words of affirmation, right? So you're thanking God for who he is. You know, you're communicating. You're also telling him what things you need. So you're petitioning, right? So the object in that case, it's not information. It's not the scripture, but it's communication. It's communication with God. So we have these two disciplines, these two things that we do, and we're supposed to do them. Then consider meditation. Now we're talking about what this is. The object of meditation is not the scripture, the object is not God, but it's, it's something else. The object is taking information that you've learned and working it into your heart. So it's a spiritual discipline where the object is actually more so yourself. The object is actually you. And so this is how you actually begin to distill some of that power and some of that truth into your life. Some of the most famous psalms, they are not prayers at all, and they're actually meditations. 
their affirmations of God's character, their, talking, their meditation on, on things that are true. Uh, there's a great psalm, Psalm 42. Maybe some of you remember it. It's this, for anybody who battles depression, it's a really fantastic place to go look into the scriptures. Why are you cast down, O my soul? Why are you disquieted? Why are you so tumultuous within me? Hope in God. Hope in God. Why are you cast down? So who's the object? He's not at, the object is himself, right? The soul, the self. Why are you cast down? So meditation is taking the things that you've learned, that maybe you've read from this spiritual discipline, the things that you've communicated to God about, and it's working them into your heart. You're working them into yourself. It's saying, I want to be affected by this. I want to move this from my mind to my heart, to my inner being. I'm connecting this to my inner being so I can be strong. That's the language of Paul, by the way. He prays in Ephesians that you might be strong in your inner being. Don't we want that? Don't we want to be blessed? Don't we want total well-being? Don't we want inner strength? Paul says it there, his prayer in Ephesians 3. Want you to be strong in your inner being. So meditation can do that for us. It can help us along the way on that journey. It's an essential component of the Christian faith that connects your studying and your praying. It connects what you learn to your own heart. Because again, it's really easy to say, okay, do some Bible study, now I'm going to pray, and that's it. And they feel, I mean, how many times have you done that and it just goes like over your head, you know? Not a lot of power for me, not really moving me, not really doing something for me, what we're missing is meditation. Because meditation is that connecting moment that takes all of that great truth and all of those things and it's just distilling them down into yourself. So if you're saying, oh, I'm, I'm reading this stuff and I'm you know, praying for you know, a number of minutes every day and I'm not feeling power, let's do this and we'll walk through this and take some time to connect it to yourself, to bring it down into you as a person. So, last observation before we get to the third point. Meditation, it turns information into implication. So, information, information, it informs you, but implications, they form you. They begin to shape you and change you. They do some forming rather than just informing. You know, it's to say, because I believe this, here's how I'll walk this out in my life. Here's the application for me in my workplace, on my taxes, with my family, with my brother, with my sister, with this particular person who I may have a hard time with. Here is the application for me in my life. So the main way you do this, just getting to the practical, this connection piece that brings it all into your own heart, the main way you do this, the way the biblical authors did this, is by asking yourself questions. By having a series of uh, inner dialogue I don't know if it would be monologue or dialogue. I have not figured that one out yet. But it's asking yourself questions. Why are you cast down? Oh, my soul, right? Psalm 42. So here's, our, here's the real how-to. There's this sheet. I, if you don't have one, grab one from the back when you're on your way out. Uh, or even right now. I would not shame you if you got up out of your seat right now to get one. Uh, my wife and I, we just hang this up on our fridge. You know, it's like a very easy four-step process. I need something like this. I'm, I'm so dense as to need additional steps beyond just, <laughs> I need some help, right? So this is something of a guided process for how to do this. So uh, these are Martin Luther's questions, very famous Christian figure from 500, 500 and so odd years ago, very important person for us to get to know if you 
would be so inclined. But his questions, uh, they've been very helpful for me. You know, his, his me- method of meditation, it really changed just the way that I approach reading the Bible and praying and, and caused them to actually do something for me. Instead, I guess, just going over my head. I, I think maybe some of you probably sympathize with me there. You've experienced something like that. Uh, so he called it the Garland Prayer or the fourth grand prayer. So the idea was that uh, his prayers would be like, it would be like a piece of garland made from four strands, four strings, right? And so that's kind of where his four-step process comes from. And those four strands represent four questions, and they're laid out here for you. So first, what instruction is God giving me in this scripture? I look at any particular Bible passage for the day. What is this teaching me? What is this telling me? Second, what in this passage can I give thanks for? So thanksgiving. Third, in light of this passage, what sins do I need to confess to God? See, now getting very personal. Now getting very in your own heart, in your own life. And then fourth, uh, what things, having read this, can I ask of God? So that's the four-step process by which you read some scripture, and then you meditate on it. Instruction, thanksgiving, confession, petition. So Martin Luther says that if you'll ask yourself those four questions after reading any given passage of Scripture, it, it, it'll cause you to soar to a whole new height. To maybe see things in the Bible that you have not seen before. To maybe see things in your own heart that you've never seen before. So that's Martin Luther's method. Uh, I'm obviously lobbying for it very hard. I printed out 150 of these uh, for you this morning. I had to like wrestle with the printer and change the huge ink thing. It was, you know, I was like trying to simultaneously eat a breakfast sandwich and drink a latte and you know, it was like, whatever, 7 o'clock, and usually sleeping in. And anyway, so uh, <laughs> this was Martin Luther's method, and it worked for him, and it works for me. I, I really enjoy doing this. It actually brings some life into my Bible reading and my prayers. So, uh, But there's other ways you can do this, you know, other ways that you can basically engage with yourself. So if this isn't for you, uh, find another way. But, there, you know, there are other ways. Maybe asking yourself after reading a passage, you know, how can I take this into such and such area of my life, my family life, my relationship with my son, my daughter? How can I take this into this difficult uh, relationship I have in my workplace or whatever? How can I take this principle from the Bible into my daily life? So it's questioning yourself. You see, this is just a tool to question yourself and, and grow along in your walk with God. So you could take five minutes on that. You know, I often do it in as little as five minutes, or you could take more, 15, 30 minutes, an hour, whatever. And I would just say, you know, don't be intimidated. Don't let this be imposing to you. Uh, do what you can do. You know, ease into it maybe. If, if this is something new for you, you know, just give it five minutes or whatever. And maybe you'll find that this is so powerful for you that you want to extend it, you know. So you read Scripture, You ask yourself these four questions, and then after that process, you pray. The last step really is prayer, right? Number four is basically prayer. And if you do this for the first time, you may experience what many people have experienced. You may experience soaring to all new heights, seeing all sorts of new things. You may experience that the scripture becomes like a burning bush to you. It's it's burning, but it's yet not consumed. Always something new for you. It's a fountain of living water for your very soul. You may experience that when you begin to do this. Or you may not experience that. You may pick it up, you may try it, you may give it the five minutes, and it's like, okay, still feeling kind of spiritually apathetic, I'm still kind of at the plateau. That's okay if you feel like that, actually, because look at the language used here. It says, 
Blessed is the person who meditates on it day and night. So you have to do what it says. Do it with some regularity. So the promise here in Psalm 1, it's if you do this with regularity, if you incorporate this into your walk with Jesus, you will have blessedness. Maybe it doesn't fire off the first time, but incorporate it. Do this day and night. Maybe once in the morning, maybe once in the evening. Do it with regularity and you'll be blessed. You'll have wellness. So that's the method. And I'm, please, you know, if you sat on it and crumpled it, there's extras. Take them home. There's like a huge stack, actually. Put it on your fridge. Tape it to your desk. Put it wherever you need to focus, you know. So... In closing, that's the practical, that's the nitty-gritty, how to do this thing. I, I highly recommend it. But how about the third point, the impactful. Why is this so powerful for us? Why does this actually give us deep resources and strength for our Christian life? Uh, if you look at the scriptures, if you look at the Bible, and you just see it as this list of tall orders, these things which you must obey, uh, it's not going to be very powerful for you. Maybe some of you grew up in a Christian, a Christian tradition where it was just loathsome to you, where it was just this harsh, commandment-oriented sort of thing. And, you know, sadly, that's a reality for a lot of us. And the unfortunate thing there is the whole picture of the beautiful Christian worldview and gospel, it did not get to you all the way if it was just adherence and it was just obedience. You got some of it, but you didn't get all of it. And that's a really unfortunate thing. And I'm sorry that that was your experience. It was a lot of people's experience. And and this can all be a very bitter thing for you. Because if you just look at it as all tall orders, all commands, it will not be very life-giving for you. What we're out for is life. We're talking about you're rooted deep into God. You have strength and joy and peace that can come up into your life. You can have power for yourself. A lot of people don't look at the Bible like that. Right? They're not looking at it like, okay, this is a, a channel of deep power for me. Uh, think about this. Very famous part of the Bible in the New Testament Gospels, the Sermon on the Mount. You know, one of Jesus' first public messages that he gave. You have heard it said, you shall not commit adultery, he says. Right? I tell you, even if you look at somebody with lust, you've committed adultery with them already. I can check that off as a tall order. You've heard it said, you shall not murder. I tell you that even if you refuse to forgive your neighbor, you hold disdain or contempt in your heart for your neighbor, you've committed murder. So, okay. I'm feeling like a tall order. You know, this is just a loathsome commandment for me. But then, I would say, go look sometime at the Sermon on the Mount, the things that Jesus says there. Matthew chapter 5 and onward. And then go read the Ten Commandments. Because you'll see that there's actually a link. You'll see that what Jesus is doing there in his Sermon on the Mount is that was actually a meditation on the truths contained in the Ten Commandments. You look through the, the, the Sermon on the Mount and he actually connects all of them. And what Jesus is doing in that moment is he's working out the law. Maybe some of the more loathsome parts of the, the Bible in your experience. He's working the law into real life implications. Jesus is taking those ideas and he's making them real for his own personal life and for his hearers. He's meditating on those scriptures. He's saying, here's the implication. Murder, that's just resentment and bitterness full bloom. That's just it leading to its logical next step. Adultery, that's just lust full bloom. That's just your lusts reaching their logical next step or final place. He's meditating on them. 
So you read those things. Maybe you read something like that from Jesus. You read the Ten Commandments. Does that make you feel delighted? You know, we're talking about, hey, meditating on the scriptures to the point of delight. You'll have some power for your life. No way you don't feel delight if it's just this list of tall orders. You just feel guilt. Which, remember, that is what the church is all about. Lathering you up with guilt. <laughs> it's not. I'm, I'm, I'm kidding. Come on, this is, that, this is like the late service. You, you know, you get it. You know I'm, I'm playing. Um, so how can we really, basically, how can we obey the first psalm? The first psalm is saying, if you will meditate on the law of God to the point of delight, you will have power for your life, you will have blessedness in your life, you will have well-being, rest for your soul, power, joy, strength, it's taken up directly from God. How can we do that? How can we meditate on it to the point of delight? What we have to do is we have to go and we have to look at the one person, whoever, whoever really did this, whoever truly meditated on the law of God day and night and fully delighted in it. We have to look to him. If you read about Jesus Christ in the New Testament, go to the Gospels and read about him. If you cut him, he would practically bleed scripture. It's remarkable. You know, he was talking about scripture all the time. There are 1,800 verses in the New Testament recording the words of Jesus, his monologue and his dialogue. And then 180 of those were scriptural quotations from the Old Testament. So that's 10%. 10% of the recorded words of the most influential figure in the history of civilization, Jesus Christ, 10% of everything we know about what he said was was scripture quotation. So that tells you how committed that he was to this, these things, these principles, right? He drew up power for his life from them. You look at how he handles the hardest situations in his life. Does he not retreat to the scriptures? Are they not his refuge in stress in the Garden of Gethsemane? Are they not his peace and madness? Isn't it where he goes when he's tempted by the devil in the wilderness? When he has not had food for 40 days? How great are you when you've not eaten? At like 3 o'clock, if you did not have lunch, you are your worst self, right? Jesus goes without food for 40 days, tempted by the devil when he's most likely to fall. But he has something to fall back on. He has great, wonderful, powerful truth. The scriptures. Right? There's power for his life. He was a remarkable person. So if you can meditate on the scriptures, I mean, think about Jesus on the cross. Think about where his mind went when he was experiencing the worst part of his life, let alone three o'clock with no lunch. Uh, Psalm 22. He quotes Psalm 22 from the cross. My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? So during the crucifixion, during the most miserable time of his life, he had this 22nd Psalm on his mind. At one point, if you go and read Psalm 22, I would recommend it to you. Go and read it. It says this, My strength is dried up. My tongue sticks to my jaws. You lay me in the dust of death. You lay me in the dust of death. And the really interesting parallel here is that on the cross, Jesus went to the dust for us. That's what happened in that moment. Jesus went to the dust for us. He became that chaff, weightless, that blows away in the wind. All of His life was dried up. He became not the great and fruitful part of the crop, but the worthless part that blows away. On the cross, Jesus Christ took what we deserved. That's what we read when we go and we see that. He 
got what we deserve and he took it because we don't delight in the law of God. Think about that. The law of God. God telling me what to do. That is totally against my, our very being. We don't want God to tell us what to do. He did. He delighted in it. He said to do the will of the Father is my food. But on the cross, Jesus Christ, he's saying to us, you deserve to be chaff because you want nothing to do with God. You want nothing to do with your maker. What, what happens when you want nothing to do with your life source? When you are cut off from your life source, all of the power, all of the life, all of the sustenance dries up in you. You wither away. You want nothing to do with But on the cross, I became the chaff. On the cross, I left my life source. I blew away so you don't have to. I took the full weight of justice for your sins, so now you're forgiven. Now you're the tree firmly rooted. Now you can delight in his words. So if you can look into the scripture and you can see that, this is what Psalm 1 is getting at. If you can see that the law of God, that the Bible, Old Testament and New, they point to Jesus. And they point to how he came to the cross to do that for us, to connect us to the power, to connect us to the Father. When you read that, you can delight. You can delight in it. And it will give you energy. It will be energizing and life-giving for you. You can go read Psalm 22, which is maybe somewhat strange and You know, your tongue is sticking to your jaws. It's obscure. But you can go there and you can see Jesus saying, My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? You read Psalm 22 and you see him there on the cross. You can go to a place like Psalm 75. Very obscure if you were to read, uh, In the hand of the Lord there is a cup of wine, and the wicked of the earth drink it to the dregs. Hmm, not very life-giving for me. But then when you can read that and you see Jesus taking that sour sponge of wine on the cross, when you meditate on that, there's the power. You know, then you can delight in it. Because you're connecting it to that moment. You're connecting it to your Savior. You're connecting it to that time where the great exchange happened for you and for me. Because you can look into that, you can look in there, Old and New Testaments, and you can see He did it for me. He drank the cup of wrath to the dregs for me. He gave his life so mine could be saved. And you can just say, What wondrous love is this? What wondrous love is this? There's that old hymn, And when from death I'm free, I'll sing on, I'll sing on. And when from death I'm free, I will sing and joyful be. And through eternity I'll sing on. So, the admonition of Psalm 1 and Martin Luther 500 and so odd years ago, uh, it was, look on the scripture. Meditate on it. Take it into your inner being. See Him there loving you. See Him there giving for you. See His grace. And then you will feel delight when you look into the law. And you'll draw up power for yourself. You'll be like a, a tree planted by streams of water. You'll bear fruit. No matter your exterior circumstances, though they may rail against you, you won't wither. You'll have power that comes from deep beneath you, deep outside of you. That is what is on offer. It is not a command, but it's an invitation. Um, so, please accept the invitation. Uh, and take power into your life. Let's pray, and we'll take communion. Our Father, we thank you for uh, we thank you for today, and we thank you that you offer us resources, uh, whether we feel we need them or not. Lord, you offer us um, peace. You offer us wellness. You offer us blessedness. And there are certain times where we just feel so strongly we we, we need something. We need some power from the outside. So, uh, would you help us? Would you help us to see and would you help us to take hold of what you have for us? This is uh, the old adage of low-hanging fruit, Father. You, you've 
offered us this freely. So do we have the five minutes? Do we have the 10? Do we have the 15? Uh, Lord, if we could only just be free to do that. Would you help us? We need your power for that. Um, we want to be blessed. We want blessedness. So please help us. We, uh, we thank you that our identity is not based on, you know, like we talked about, we feel like, uh, you know, whether or not we succeed, whether or not we are accepted by our peers, these sorts of things, outside worldly metrics of success and accomplishment, we think that those things define us. But God, when we do this, when we meditate on the gospel, when we realize that the king of the cosmos, the maker of the stars, he became a person and he took the full weight of punishment for sin for me, uh, that's a totally different metric for, for acceptance. When we can realize that, Father, we have your acceptance and uh, we have your son's robes, we have your son's crown. When we can meditate on that, we'll have power for our life. So we, we need your help for that. Please uh, rescue us from the world system that causes us to think that we, we have to prove ourselves because we don't. Jesus, you've proved it all for us. So help us lean into that now, we pray as we, uh, we sing and we commune. Amen. Well, um, during these next songs, please feel free at any time to come forward and take communion. We'll sing three or four. So uh, the encouragement is commune. You know, that's what we call it, communion. So as you come and you take the bread, which represents his broken body on the cross, the cup, which is his blood shed by the spear and by the crown and the nails, uh, commune with him. That's what this is all about, right? It's about communing, making connection, getting close connecting God to, to yourself. Uh, that's what communion is about too. So please come forward and maybe if it's the first time this week, just make contact, commune with Him.